Thank you so much for joining us on Discover Economics How Did I Get Here podcast. Just who or what is an economist? There's an economic lens for every topic that you can possibly think of. The economists in our podcast are motivated by a desire to change the world and a belief that better data and better understanding are key to achieving this aim. I'm very excited and enthusiastic about learning more about what economics can offer us as a society and what are the options when it comes to careers for young people. And it's been an absolute delight to do this series and to learn more and to indulge my nosiness to get to ask so many questions that I'm hoping you as listeners will have wanted to ask yourself. Thanks for listening. Now, I obviously enjoy speaking to all of the guests <laughs> for the podcast, but I particularly enjoyed this one. And not just because Will is Scottish, although of course it helps, but it was so interesting to speak to Will because he was chief economist of Spotify. And what this interview does, I mean, his whole career, brings together his love and passion for music as well as economics. So there's some real fascinating storytelling and advice um, here. And, you know, Will has also written a book recently, which we mentioned in the podcast, um, Tarzan Economics, um, which I would definitely recommend you go and get. I actually have downloaded it on um, Audible because I love an audiobook. So go out and check that out. Um, It's, you know, really accessible. And I think that quite a few if you're a teacher or and you're thinking about introducing like older students or a-level students to economics this is quite a good way in actually it's not like freakonomics or any of those books that's a little bit more you know for me for joe public it does take things up a little notch but i think it would be you know worth checking out definitely so i hope you enjoyed the episode i really did it's I think this might be the one that's most left field, shall we say, <laughs> coming at it as the, like I said, the chief economist at Spotify um, and previously for other yeah, music organisations. So dive in, have a listen and let us know what you think. So today we are joined by Will Page. Will is the former chief economist of Spotify and PRS for Music, where he pioneered Rockonomics, publishing work on Radiohead's In Rainbows, Saving BBC Six Music and Articulating the Global Value of Music Copyright. His book, Tarzan Economics, Eight Principles in Pivoting Through Disruption, publishes on the 1st of April. He has served as a fellow of LSE's Marshall Institute throughout 2020 and has been appointed fellow to LSE's European Institute starting in May 2021. Hi, Will. It's lovely to meet you. And thank you so much for taking the time to tell us exactly how you got here. Thank you so much. Great to be here. And I really support your course. Oh, good, good. You've given me a little bit of info just before we started about your book. Um, we were talking about Discover Economics and, and what we're trying to do. And you gave away a bit of a spoiler that the last line of your book is exactly related to what we're trying to do. So I'm going to jump right in there and ask you, what is the last line of your book? So we're going to hop, skip and jump 323 pages, yes, 85,000 words and 18 months of <laughs> blood, sweat and tears and just wrap it up, Chloe. <laughs> Who needs that? Yeah. Well, the last sentence of the book is is my way of trying to capture the journey that I've been on in terms of being an economist in a very unusual position. I think I was um, and continue to be the only economist in the music industry, which technically makes me a monopoly. So I should be smashed up into little pieces. And uh, it's just a very, very unique career path. But the way that I wrapped the book up, and we'll go back to the contents of the book later, I guess, but I simply say, don't wait for your job description, create your job description. And I came up with that line when I was doing some work on women in STEM subjects for sort of high school students that are looking at filling in UCAS forms. And people are asking, like, we don't see courses in doing what you're doing, like combining your passion of music and economics. You know, how do we get on that course? I said, there isn't one. And that's the point. Mm-hmm. Don't wait for your job description, create your job description. I think this 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 passive response of I'll see what jobs are out on the market and respond to them is the wrong way to approach a career path in economics. Look at what you've got to 100%. offer, create a job description and sell that into your employer. I love that. And and true across so many things, not just economics. And I, I do a lot of work with young people where I'm trying to do mentoring and, and I've taught in the past. And a lot of my conversations kind of 
tinker around that area. You know, the job that is there right now, I mean, this is a bit of a cliche, you know, might not be there in five to 10 years. That knowing what you enjoy and what you are passionate about and what you can make a living doing, because let's face it, we've all got bills to pay, is really important. And sometimes you don't know that until you just start doing stuff, I suppose, as well. I love that. And, and we definitely will come back to the other pages and all of that other hard work that you put into the book, I promise. It won't just come down to that end quote. A quick pun to my surname there. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Unintentional, but I'll take it. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's interesting to think that the management teams of companies, which are probably putting out job postings without a minute's thought, can really describe what they need. Yeah. And I, I just love your listeners, be it the students, be it the parents who are thinking about their their children's career in economics to consider flipping the table and saying, I know what I've got to offer and I know that they need it. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with having that level of confidence when you're looking at the job market to go up to a failing company and say, I know why you're failing and I know what it's going to take to succeed. You know, if the whole purpose of like, you know, the job market is to stand above from the crowd, then why why wait for your job description? Just go out there and create one, sell it. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like I said, the managers don't necessarily know. I mean, I'm sure you've come across this as well. The amount of people I speak to about the job descriptions they put out into the marketplace or the job descriptions that people have that do not match what they do every day. And the person putting out the job description looking for new member staff doesn't entirely know what they need until that person's in place. And so many times people will be doing the interview process and they'll get a candidate come in and think, well, you're not really what I was looking for when I started this process. But now that I've talked to you, I understand that you're maybe what I need. It happens all the time. So let me take it. I'm going to rewind. I want to make one of those little... This is where video would be quite handy. You know, we can do the wriggly, the wriggly screen thing. Um, but let's go back to the beginning. So where did you grow up and what were you like at school? Uh, so I grew up in Edinburgh and also with uh, a strong allegiance to the Scottish borders, particularly on the coast of the Scottish borders, just, just south of Dunbar, really. It's quite interesting if you're from the small town of Dunbar and you think, what have we got in Dunbar? Well, uh, Knockdown Castle, a pretty interesting harbour, a supermarket. But you've also got the small town of uh, the small birthplace of John Muir. And when you work in mm. Silicon Valley in California, it's incredible. Like you have street names, roundabouts, schools. John Muir is like God there. Now, okay, he left on the age of 11, but, you know, it's the best a minor point. when you're meeting venture capitalists in, in Silicon Valley is to say, I come from the town of John Muir, and then you're in. Serious A, B, C, D, all the way up to Z. We're funding you. Yeah. Um, so it's. <gasps> There is a small claim to fame to Dunbar, which I think is fascinating, which is the, the journey mm. of John Muir and what he did for the National Parks of America. But yeah, that's that's my home. And then through school in Edinburgh and then through to university at University of Strathclyde, which, you know, the really important academic credentials of the University of Strathclyde at the time was he had more student bars under one roof than any other university in the country. They had 10 floors uh, of bad behavior in that building. Uh, I think I got myself banned from just about all of them. And then a gap year working in financial services and then into doing my master's. And I think really important for your audience to appreciate, I did the Scottish doctoral program in economics master's, which is a very clever idea of pooling talents. So essentially mm -hmm. eight Scottish universities would pool their services into one campus, one master's program. And that was a really great way of giving you the specialisms you would need to execute on your thesis. So for example, if you were doing your master's at Edinburgh University, but you had a big focus in labour market economics and the best labour market professor was at Aberdeen, you, you would be able to tap into that expertise as part of your Edinburgh-based MSc. So I think it's a, for your listeners, it's a very interesting pooling model of running a master's programme, eight universities mm. getting pulled into one campus that could be modelled elsewhere. It gives you the assurance oh, of a definitely. great degree, but also the professor you need to pursue your specialism. That, I mean, that sounds amazing. I thought... Because I talk to people all the time about going to uni in, in Scotland in general, because you get four years, of course, for your undergrad. And one of the things that I point out all the time is the fact that I did English um, literature and linguistics. But because as long as you've got your core credits in those subjects, I got to do random stuff in the biology department and, and you know, all yeah. kinds of other philosophy and, and Latin randomly one year as well. And, and I think that, yeah, there's a definitely thinking a lot about how can you get the experience that you need when you're doing your your schooling if you like because like you where you know you've obviously 
brought together your love of music and economics. You hear that language when people talk about starting their own business or being an entrepreneur, but you don't necessarily hear that language when it comes to you can bring things together actually in your studies. You don't have to be isolated into one thing or another. You can bring things together before you even get started. Can I just ask a quick question before you get to uni? What kind of stuff did you like at school? Um, Skateboarding. (laughs) Skateboarding and skateboarding. Um, Oh, marvellous. (laughs) Big fan of art and design. Yeah. Very interested in politics. But beyond school, I think, you know, I mentioned in the book from a very early age, I was not just introduced to the concept of economics, but my, my father, who's a math teacher at school in Scotland, taught me how to teach economics. And that's really, really interesting. Amazing. He taught me how to teach economics before I was able to learn it. And what I liked about that was he always made me think about how your best intentions could make the problem worse. Mm-hmm. And that could go for you know, your life as a as a student at primary school or high school or into university, but also in politics, how mm. introducing a policy to solve the problem can make the problem worse. And in the book, I give a really good example. And I think it was 11 years old, so still, you know, wrapping up primary school at Tool Cross, primary school in the heart of Edinburgh. We were at the beach in the Scottish borders. And, you know, I said to my dad, well, what, what does economics mean? You know, you taught my older brother, Tom, what economics is. You've got to teach me. I wanted sibling rivalries kicking in. I need to catch up with him. <laughs> Give me the same goods that you gave him because the, the word economics is intriguing. I want to know what it means. So we're at this beach in, in, in the Scottish borders. And my dad said, let's imagine you're the prime minister. Okay, I'm 11, but we'll go with this. And he said, we're looking out here on the beach. Now, imagine I told you that 20-odd children drowned fatally in British waters last year. And there's hysteria going on and you're at number 10 Downing Street and you have to come out with a policy response to the fact that all these kids are drowning in British waters and you've got grieving parents staring at you, you've got angry politicians and you've got a hostile press. Tell them what your policy response is going to be. I said, okay, let's just work myself out here. So we're at this beach, we're looking at, you know, kids playing in the water. And obviously there's a problem which needs to solve, which is that kids are drowning in the water and I got to come up with my policy. So my policy response, I don't know what you would say, Jennifer, but my policy response was to make swimming compulsory. Mm-hmm. Fair project. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you really want to solve the problem. You're upset, you're an 11-year-old kid and you're crying because you're hearing that kids are drowning in British beaches. Yeah. So then I said, great, that's politics. Now let's do some economics. What do we know about what happened? Kids drowned, Dad, and that makes me sad. Okay. Yeah. Where were the kids? They were in the water, Dad. And what does that tell you about their ability to swim or not? That means they could swim, Dad. Mm. Why did you say that? Because kids who can't swim don't go into water. Mm-hmm. And then the penny dropped. My policy would make swimming compulsory so all kids could swim, which means we would have more kids in the water as opposed to less. Mm-hmm. Now, if 0.001% of them drowned fatally in accidents, you'd have more deaths as opposed yeah. to less. And you can quickly see how the economist is building a model in this head here. And that was the moment for me where I realized this is my subject. This is what fascinates me, is how you can challenge your own logic by realizing your best intentions of mice and men, to quote that famous Scottish poet, uh, could actually make the problems worse. Dad, 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 I don't want more kids to drown. I want less. I want to solve the problem. So what's the solution? And he talked about information. You know, how about alerting parents to what the dangerous beaches are? How about a flag system, red, amber, green, as to the state of the undercurrents? Give the kids the information to know when it's safe to go into the water and you can reduce the risk of them drowning. But making something compulsory without any question, if that was my sole policy response, would have made the problem worse. So that's a really, you know, we go back to what did I learn at school, forget school for a second. When I learned that lesson, I knew that somewhere along the line, I was going to land myself in a career in economics. That's amazing. And it, honestly, it parallels so many conversations I think we're having today, because one of the, you know, one of the things about Discover Economics is that, um, you know, we're trying to open up the field of economics and get more diversity and you know whether that's ethnic diversity gender diversity um cognitive diversity just yes <laughs> absolutely uh, let me give you a very quick flip side of cognitive diversity so my first day when i moved to london in 2006 uh, the same question that you've just asked was asked to me by the general counsel of the performing rights society a wonderful woman mm-hmm. you know top of her legal game in copyright 
And she said to him, well, how did you discover economics? And I told her the story of being 11 years old, being at the beach with my mm. dad, how I wanted to solve the problem, but I made the problem worse. And went through that story in you know perfect articulate fashion. And she put down her knife and fork over lunch and said, I'd have just banned the kids from swimming. I was like, there's a legal <laughs> wow. mindset. <laughs> yeah. So a lawyer sees a problem, ban people from doing it, and that solves a problem. An economist sees a problem, we have to do kind of reverse logic as to what would actually solve the problem. And I thought... This is a very useful anecdote to hold on to here. We're learning yes. a lot about different mindsets here. So cognitive diversity in the legal profession, I think, is required as well. A hundred percent. And that actually, that that reminds me of something you said in a in your recent article for LSE, when you're talking about, you know, analysing people's behaviour. Yeah. Because you can't legislate for people's behaviour. Like, in, I don't know about you growing up, especially, or even now, you know, there's a certain thing of, well, I'm a, a bit of a goody two-shoes, I have to say, and I was a SWAT at school, although we've established before we started recording. Am I supposed to believe that? No, very- 100%. My problem is that my ver- probably my definition of bad behaviour and good behaviour is different to most people's. <laughs> that's, the, that's the difference. Also, I, you know, hugely aware of the kind of public consciousness that as soon as you say something is not allowed, you're kind of pushing people to try and do it. It's like a red flag to a lot of people. And it's not necessarily, like you said, you know, if, if you ban swimming in the sea, great. But you know that it's the people who are not the strongest of swimmers, not the most sensible when it comes to thinking about undercurrents and all the rest of it. It's going to be people who get drunk on a Saturday night at a beach party who are then going to jump in the sea because it seems like a good idea. So uh, I, I love what you've said in a lot of your work about, you know, you've got to think about the behaviour as well and mm. and you know and i think that's where my interest in economics as a subject comes from as well obviously i don't have any experience or background but i do one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is because i want people to understand exactly what it means and the storytelling and the reality and the application of it if you like which is why i love your story because you know if we put you in front of a bunch of school kids you're probably as far away from what young people think an economist is when they see them on the news talking about inflation. <laughs> you know, that's very far away from what you do. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your time working at the Scottish government while being a DJ of an evening, because I feel like that is also something that people could relate to quite a lot and will be surprising. Perhaps a, a Batman lifestyle is the best way to describe it. So by day, wearing a charcoal black suit, blue shirt, red tie, mm-hmm. and doing some of the most boring work known to man, mm-hmm. um, like local income tax reform, wonderful icebreaker. Yeah. And then by night, I found myself you know, desperately trying to get into the music industry. So I started writing for a, an award-winning publication called Straight No Chaser, which is run by a, a, quite a famous DJ in Britain called Giles Peterson. And you know, I was specializing in working with Philadelphia hip-hop artists, particularly The Roots, um, Rich Medina, King Brit, these types of people, and also Brazilian funk stars, especially the composer Yumir Diodato and Marcelo de Dois and these artists. So <laughs> Brazil and Philadelphia funk music by night and then government economic tax policy by day. So it was an interesting combination, but you know the career's advice there is what I call boot camp. I think the government mm-hmm. economic service, if you can get a good line manager and if you can get a good working department, and these are two conditions, get mm-hmm. a bad manager, get a bad department, it's not going to work out for you. Yeah. You can't just take the brand on face value. But if you can get that, then you can get a really good boot camp and understanding how to apply economics in an environment, you know, how to influence a policy, how to mm. construct a cost-benefit analysis, how to think about option appraisal, where the first option is do nothing. Then you can explore option A compared to do nothing. Then you can explore option B against doing nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, A very simple twist to the tail there, but a lot of people think, I'll just compare option A to option B. No, you compare option A to do nothing, you compare yeah. option B to do nothing, and then you build out your net uh, assessment of the costs and benefits. So I would stress that the government economic service is a fantastic boot camp to build an economics career. So having two years, three years in the government economic service, you know, is really going to stand you well in terms of you know, future steps. Great training, some great mentoring, mm. and also you get to understand influence. Like you can be a great economist and have zero influence on what's going around you. And I don't care if you're a PhD from the University of Chicago and all these accolades, if you're not influencing, then you know, how can you take value in your job description? You know, the job of economics is to have impact. 
And that's a different skill. That's communication skills. That's something that's come up in a few of the other interviews, which is, you know, it's not really until we get into the workplace that you start to learn about not just having the best idea, but how to communicate it to the people that you need to communicate it to in order to get things done. And, you know, that's some people you know, maybe naturally very good at it. Some people may have gone to schools where actually that was a big part of the curriculum. I know that for me uh, in my state school, you know, in Northeast Scotland, it wasn't necessarily something that that was part of what I learned at school. But it is, it's such an important thing. And, and actually in, in your world, in Spotify and other kind of tech giants, if you like, what's really fascinating is when people look at them, it, it doesn't matter if someone came first and had a better idea if they can't articulate it to the audience that they're trying to reach and, and get it to kind of, you know, get, you know, momentum's a word that's thrown around a little bit too much, you know, in that space as well. But th- there's a big part about communicating what you offer and what you're trying to do and what you're trying to achieve that has a huge influence on the success of an idea. Where do you think you managed to pick that up? Or, I mean, I imagine that given how your dad was talking to you when you were 11, you probably had a bit of it before you got into the workplace. But where do you think is they can pick that up? You're right. The influence of my father is a big one there. But um, mm. building out into my role at government, was I particularly good at it? No. I would stare mm. at inconvenient truths and think, is it worth my while raising my hand and saying that doesn't make sense or that's yeah. going to make the problem worse? You know, I, I'm not going to claim to be a saint here. Probably not. I'm more interested in having a good time in the evening and getting my salary. <laughs> I think... The, the, the thing which comes in when you look at moving into music was there was a passion there. I was passionate about music, always have been since 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 discovering Queen, you know, just, and I was passionate about a music industry that was staring into the abyss. Around about the time of moving to London in 2006, let's remind ourselves, piracy, that is stealing music from the internet, was rampant. It was easily the most dominant form of music consumption. Revenues were falling off a cliff. The purpose of copyright, if you think about the word copyright for a second, is the right to control copying, which led me as an economist to ask the question about how do you control copyright when you've lost the right to control copying because of the internet and because of disruption? I think it was the passion, kind of going a little bit deep here, but hold with me, it's the passion overrode the insecurities to say somebody's got to raise their hand and start dealing with inconvenient truths. And that, for me, was the role of an economist. And that was where I decided to create my job description as opposed to wait for one. It was simply to say, this business is dying. Mm-hmm. Economics might be able to do something about it. Nobody in the business has hired an economist to date, and I want to be your first. That's amazing. And, and you're absolutely right. There comes a point where you're, I suppose, and I find myself in these positions where you're sitting in a room and depending on who's in that room, you might feel like you don't have a voice, but the conversation gets to a point where you think, hold on a minute, clearly no one else is going to open their gob and shout, no, you're all wrong. This is a mistake. So someone has to, and you get pushed to that point. And I, and I, I can imagine that that happens all the time. Actually, I can imagine that I, I don't have to imagine, I did that at school to my teachers quite often because along with the goody two-shoes thing was a need to ask questions, um, which I'm sure that a lot of my teachers find very annoying. Uh, but again, it's that confidence thing is is something I'd like to just hold on to for a second, because when we talk about diversity in any industry, it, I think there are so many hurdles that, say, the first person doing anything has to to overcome that person has to have the confidence that they can step into that environment amongst people who you know don't look like them or don't have the same background as them or don't have the same experience as them and know that they can stand there and hold their own making sure that we have young people who have the confidence that they understand what economics is let's say and how they can apply it to places that maybe haven't looked at it through the lens of economics before. What advice would you give to, say, teachers who are talking to those types of young people who could do that, who could take economics into new places? It's tough because there is a lot of professions out there which don't employ economists to this day. Mm. Uh, My story of music is just one of many. It's not actually that unique. I mean, Mm. sure, everyone's saying, what, the music industry is hiring an economist? How weird. But you could see that for a lot of professions. And that, again, goes back to those last words of the book. There's not enough people creating their own job description and applying it to their profession. 
I remember my father saying that economics was not about you know, Greek symbols and crazy mathematical formulas, which is the off-putting part, or solving a Lagrange formula in calculus. I mean, my master's was basically 12 months of solving Lagrange formulas. Let me be absolutely clear to the students and parents listening to this podcast. I haven't solved the Lagrange formula once in my professional career, and I don't expect to. So what purpose was that master's, which cost £3,000 of student debt, to, to do? You know, just a genuine question. Like, was that a useful tool to apply? Have I seen any calculus being applied by any professional economic colleagues? No. So what are you teaching? Why don't you learn Mm -hmm. Google BigQuery, Tableau dashboards, and the best Excel skills in the block? Make you a far better economist learning calculus all day and all night. So there's questions there. So I I think the best thing... You know, I would go back to what my father said. It was just about abstraction, thinking about problems differently. Why do we have a drought? Because we run out of water, Dad. No, because we priced water too cheaply. Thinking mm. about the problem differently. And in the book, in the sixth chapter of the book, it's called Pivotal Thinking. It's where I tell the story of being on the beach. But it's it, I quote something from Rory Sutherland. He's this famous ad man and a brilliant guest for your show. I'd really encourage you to get Rory on. He's, you know, when you go to the Ogilvy offices, it has a mm. big ball above the reception we sell or else it's a great way of reminding people in advertising what we do yeah he gave me this line once we said the opposite of a good idea can also be pause a good idea simple there's a sentence of a matter of words no 65 page pdf slide deck here the opposite of a good idea can also be a good idea and it's a way of thinking like that, which is, okay, you got a good idea. Let's use, just do one basic economics. You, Jennifer's got a good idea that a monopoly would reduce output and increase prices. Mm-hmm. I get it. That's why we smash up monopolies. That's why monopolies are bad. That's why the board game teaches us, right? So how about this? The opposite of a good idea is also a good idea. When I look at tech monopolies, which have no marginal cost, they're software-based companies, they expand output and pretty much eliminate price. So the opposite of a good idea can also be a good idea. Now, there's something which, you know, I'm going to bring this back to the students listening. How much money have you spent on Facebook? Nothing, but they're a monopoly. Mm. Hold on. They're expanding output, 1.6 billion people getting 1.6 billion unique news fees, none of which are the same. So they've expanded output, but they've eliminated price. So you can't simply grab off the shelf the old economic textbook of what is a monopoly and say, that's a good idea, let's break up monopolies. We're not regulating Tesco's, we're regulating technology, and this stuff is hard. Yeah. But I would love the students listening and for the parents listening to use, to use that example because social media is in all of our lives. Yeah, They're all called monopolies, which, by the way, the plural is kind of amusing there. There's all these monopolies. <laughs> is the end, on the end of that. But yeah, we, we relate to social media, but then if they are monopolies, that is, there's more than one monopoly, which is an anomaly, but if they are monopolies, they're definitely not monopolies in how the textbook teaches us. So either the textbook is wrong or the description is wrong, but something's got to give. And I think there's a lot of that required in economics, especially from kids studying today to realize those textbooks, Yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of saying next, next year's curriculum is already out of date, but the curriculum that they teach in economics is approximately 23 years out of date. So there's a lot of work to be done there in terms of, okay, I can pass my exam and score an A, but I'd much rather challenge conventional thinking and give myself an A instead. And and that's the challenge, I suppose, for parents giving advice to their children and also for the students making decisions themselves. And you and I have probably also had to make this decision of, I know I'm going to do this qualification and I'm never going to use it again, but if I don't get it, I'm not going to be able to walk through this next door that I want to walk through in order to do the next thing that I want to achieve. And that, and that's a horrible decision to have to make, especially when we're talking about things like masters that cost money and not everyone yeah. has access to them. And we want people who maybe don't have the money to pay for a master's to walk through that same door because we need them, because we need that other way of thinking and experience. And we're beginning to see the the, the fight back on that front in tech as well, which is mm. you'll see companies like Google saying to students, don't go to university and acquire debt. We'll just train you up on the Google campus instead and give you the exact tools you need. And there's an argument for and against that. Oh, but you wouldn't get the more fulfilling experience of university if you buy into that story. But equally, you do get the vocational skills to succeed and become a product manager at Google and earn what the prime minister in Britain earns in a month, in a year and earn that in a month working for Google. So, you know, there's pros and cons to all of this. And I think, you know, in the background there, there's a very interesting, something you said earlier in this podcast, it's a very interesting debate about specialism. And we are both from Scotland and with the higher system in Scotland, it's possible to go to university at the age of 17, graduate at 21, 
And one of my best friends at university graduated from Stress Clyde with chemical engineering. And it's like, do you really know at the age of 21 that you want to be a chemical engineer? <laughs> yes. Specialism. And again, in cognitive diversity, I think, begs the question of, would it be better to have a more rounded education with bits and pieces from other disciplines? And, that, yeah. and I think that's what's happening with economics. I mean, you mentioned behavioral economics. You know, to be kind of blunt here, speaking to somebody from Peter Heed, <laughs> behavioral economics for me is, Microeconomics is dead, so they've gone down the psychology department and nicked a bunch of ideas. Sorry, but it wasn't that original in the first place. You can mm-hmm. mock it up and sell a bunch of books portraying it is, but you know that's what's happening. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. You know, a good artist borrows, a great artist steals, as John Lennon Absolutely. said. And economics is stealing from all other disciplines now to try and stay relevant. I, w- I would champion theft in that respect. It's piracy, yeah. but not as we know it. And um, <laughs> go down from sociology, you know, go down steal from anthropology. The job yeah. of economics is to be dynamic. Absolutely. And to learn from, for, learn from the new information. Like, don't be, that's what I love about it as well, is when we go down the route of philosophy and politics, or, or down the policy route, I suppose, there's too many ways that people People can get tied to, well, I've made this decision, I've drawn this line in the sand, I can't possibly change my mind, even if new information comes in. And to me, that's one of the beautiful things about economics is that you can pull in information. Oh, no, go on, you're going to tell me I'm wrong. Well, no, it's just I want to build that point out for you there. It's just Go you know, what Brian always said in the years of 2002, 2006, when I was there, was the role of an economist in government was to strive for evidence-based policymaking mm. and avoid the temptation of policy-based evidence-making. And you can see what happens yes. in the world. Policy-based evidence-making, I want to build a high-speed rail link between London and Birmingham so people can get to Birmingham faster. Why does anybody want to get to Birmingham faster? Nevertheless, find the evidence to justify that rail link versus looking at the evidence and trying to understand yeah. whether there would genuinely be an uptake to commute from Birmingham to London. So evidence-based policymaking is what we should be going for, whether it's economic evidence, whether it's psychological evidence, where whatever discipline you can to form a policy is a good example of an economist. But you know, using economics to justify an existing belief in a policy is a bad use of economics. And I Absolutely. really, really believe that. And don't expect to get promoted fast by playing that game because you're actually trying yeah. to be objective as opposed to subjective. But I think that's the job of an economist is to say, wait, what does the evidence actually say? And let's build a view upon that as opposed to assuming we need a train link and then we're going to find evidence to justify that assumption. It's very, yeah. very important. Where the rubber hits the road is, is adhering to the former and avoiding the temptation of the latter. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is so important. And some of the conversations we've been having with other economists for this series is that a lot of them have come out and said, look, I can inform policy by giving policymakers the information, but I'm not a policymaker. And, you know, I think in some disciplines or let's say in some economics disciplines, people have tried to make that distinction for themselves, where they're like, I'm giving you the information, you can choose to ignore it, but I'm not the one making the policy, I'm giving you the best information. And and actually, when we talk about, the, this is something else that I'm fascinated by, because I'm so nosy, and that's one of the reasons I love social media, because I can follow people on Twitter that that are completely different from me, have completely different lives, and I can be very nosy about what they, what they think and what their lives are like. And I recommend that to anyone who's, <laughs> who's just trying to learn more things, find excellent people who share their lives and, and kind of listen in. And the interesting thing as well about economics, because we can start to drill down to how research is conducted and how we consume research as well when we think about diversity and something that's coming out in the last few years, or certainly that's been more visible to the public in the last few years. I'm sure that there's people shouting, listening to this, saying, we knew for a long time that research can be biased and that not all data is is created equally, etc. So I think what's also good about economics borrowing other disciplines is being willing to look at how we collect information and how we process information and understanding that you know, numbers on their own don't tell the whole story and how the people who then translate those numbers, they have their own biases. Amen. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a big one. It's it's interesting when we think about some of the contents of the book that's going to be relevant to your audience. There's a, mm. a chapter there called Big Data, Big Mistakes. And I'll take what you were saying there and take it a step further, which is sometimes having all the data is the problem. And we call it quantification bias, where you are biased to what you can measure and not only 
lack the bias or the balance, but you just disregard what you can't as irrelevant. And that's yeah. where the problem happens. The, the, mm. the quantification fallacy almost um, as well. And I, I explore that in the book and with Spotify, we had all of this data and a common question is you had all this amazing data. What did you do with it? The job of an economist was to be the sort of the opposite end of the spectrum, which is not trust it because you yes. can build a dashboard and show a spike doesn't tell me anything. Yeah. I need to challenge that dashboard. Why was it built? I need to question that spike. Is it just common sense? Mm-hmm. And then look at what else is happening, which wasn't being measured. Uh, I give you, a, you know, some very, very quick examples, but just mm. um, in if you think about big data, here's a great one. Everybody at school or the parents listening will be familiar with Google. We'll be searching for Google for the content that we're looking for. That's a pretty familiar task. So let's say, here's a good example, Apple One, which is a, a bundle which students, parents might be considering $30 a month gets you all of Apple's products, news, music, film, games, fitness, two terabits of storage if you happen to work at NASA. It's all there for $30 a month. If you search for Apple One on Google, the first link will be a paid search link paid for by Apple to appear at the top of the rankings on Google. The second link will be an organic link to the Apple One bottle, which Apple didn't have to pay for. Mm-hmm. You don't need to be an economist, and you may well be a parent of a kid working out what they want to do with their UCAS form. You may be with that kid staring at UCAS form thinking, how should I fill it out? To spot that and realize we have a problem. Mm. I'm preaching to the converted. I search for Apple One. I don't need to pay Google to appear at the top of the rankings when somebody searches for Apple One. And in that chapter, I, I take an example of Steve Tadellis, the former chief economist at eBay and a professor at Berkeley University and does some really great work that challenges not just you know how markets work, but how economists think. And he did this great project with eBay where he identified hundreds of millions of pounds being spent on paid search advertising, which didn't need to be spent. You know, you can take that money off your PL tomorrow and not affect turnover. Paid search advertising is only achieving what organic hits would have achieved anyway. If I search for a Gibson Les Paul guitar on eBay, guess what's going to come up? A Gibson Les Paul guitar on eBay. We didn't need to pay for that search. So he did that. Now, the point I mean, when he presented that work, what do you think eBay said? Well done, Nobel Prize winning piece of economics. No, we like spending that money on paid search advertising. We have quite a cozy relationship with Google here. And that's, again, an example where the rubber hits the road. Yeah. You know, a 10-year-old could spot there's a problem there in terms of paying for something that you would have achieved anyway. But even at the higher echelons of business, you have these reciprocal relationships which say, don't rock the boat so fast. And I think that's for me, is, is that's the type of corporate turf war and policy turf war if you're working in the public sector where economists really need to get their hands dirty and you know earn their bread tricky because you're always trying to avoid not getting sacked but relevant and then again you know how many big data scientists have showed the benefits of paid search advertising without questioning whether the organic hit would have come up in the first place and i i'd ask all your listeners maybe take a break from this podcast jump onto <laughs> google and try it yourself yes. it's hilarious to see I know, absolutely. And and also what you were saying there about not just having all that big data, but asking, you know, can I trust it? That's one of the mm. first things, because as I said earlier, I work in digital comms and I spend so much time educating people like you're looking at, say, Google Analytics for your website and it will it will give you some demographic data. Well, how many of your households have a device that has one IP address, but is used by four different people who hit four different demographics? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that's in what, like, so, so how do you know? And, and it's, it's making sure that yes, you've got the numbers, that's one step. But have you asked how those numbers came about? Where did they come from? What could possibly be skewing that information before you even start to analyze it? I think that something that came up when we interviewed Rachel Griffith and something that I think my parents gave me uh, the g- absolute gift that they gave me that I still hold on dearly to is just being endlessly curious about how things work. Yeah. Like and, and and that's the biggest thing you can do I think if you want to be an economist or or just in anything in life is making sure you're the one that's asking the question of well how how does this work though? You know, we can't take anything for granted. I know, it may be worth as we come out of the pandemic um just touching on that as well because one a hat tip to Tim Hartford and how to vaccinate the world you know podcast and broadcasting the BBC for introducing some sort of coherent mathematical analysis to some of the numbers that are being found around with the pandemic. But if if you're told about a regional R rate, okay, think about that. A regional R rate, you're right to raise your hand and say, 
how in God's name are you going to measure, measure the R rate by region when people are moving around? Yeah. You know, sorry, but we, we've got quite a big elephant in the room here that we need to tackle. If I'm supposed to be worried about in one region, it's 1.2 and another it's 0.9. I mean, I mean, London's the best example. I mean, yeah. I used to just laugh when I when I was living in North London and, and it would be like, in your area. And I'm like, I can take five steps in the other direction and I'm in someone else's area for a start. <laughs> we're all so close together. And yeah, it's it's impossible. It's impossible. And it, it just maybe drawing on Spotify there with the R rate to be, I'll bring it back to Spotify mm. and give you a really good example that your listeners, the kids at school and the parents wondering where they're going to go at university can relate to is at Spotify, we have a free tier. Everyone knows that. Mm. You get adverts, you don't get offline listening. And then we have a paid tier for £10 a month, $14.99 for a family plan where you get offline listening, no adverts, full features. Great. Everyone understands the standard class carriage, the first class carriage, and the model of converting you from standard class to first class is the same as you know what economists have explored with monopolistic screening over the years as well. So mm. that's the model. But then you have the language of conversion. So people would often say, what's your conversion ratio? How many people did you convert from free to pay? That would be the, the golden metric for Spotify during its pre-IPO years. How's conversion going? Mm. And I used to say, that's the wrong word. Because I could go from no Spotify to paid Spotify, perfectly yeah. fine. Perhaps they take up the Vodafone bundle here in the UK some of your listeners may be on, but you didn't convert me from free to paid. Yeah. So the language of conversion is misleading. You take that to the R rate debate, you have the same issue in terms of how do you measure a retransmission? Yes. No, people didn't go from A to B necessarily. They could have gone straight to B. And it's very interesting how I was able to draw on my time at Spotify to understanding some of the problems of metrics in the pandemic. And that's a good use of economics. Yeah, absolutely. Understanding the concepts and you might spend years using them, applying them in one industry, and then you can absolutely take that to another um, and apply them. So people listening, it's a long career, guys, if you can (laughs) get the concepts nailed um, and taking it elsewhere. I wondered if I could just, I'm going to bring in a quote from the end of your LSE article, I think that I mentioned earlier, just to ask for some advice, if you like, and we'll have a link um, in the description. So when the ideas in our heads are worth more than the roofs above them. The quote at the end, now due to the accelerated pace of disruption that's resulted from the pandemic, we're all facing our Napster moment. We all need to let go of transactional data and grab onto an understanding of consumption. We all need to realise what matters most. Our ideas and our actions are all too often what's been measured least. So I was thinking about that concept or reality that IP is worth um, more than real estate. And what does that mean for young people in their future? Because gone are the kind of traditional ideas of, you know, childhood, go to school, get a job, buy a house, you know, that I was brought up with. And I feel like, so the generation that have just come out of university, let's say right now, and are in the job market, but early on in the job market, people talk about that being the kind of lost generation, you know, they're not they're not going to be able to afford to buy a house or it's, you know, all of those traditional markers, let's say were gone for them. And if you're a young person right now and you listen to that in the media, you think, well, I really want to swear there, you think, oh, what, what am I, you know, what does that mean for me? Because I'm even, you know, I, I'm further away from that, let's say, than than they are. So what advice would you give to young people who find themselves in that position and thinking about the future and, you know, investment and life markers, let's say? To that paragraph specifically, I'm going to draw on a, a, a pretty clear example here of how to think differently about how the world has been measured mm. over the past decades if not centuries to why i think music's journey you know articulated in my book matters so much is because it got there first it was the first Mm. to suffer digital disruption it's the first to recover and you know to that quote everybody now is staring at their napster moment professions and i mentioned in the book accountancy banking and lawyers were previously the one two three top professions for any university graduate when i was at university back around the time henry (laughs) Um, Now, they're all replaced by software engineers, product designers, and UX specialists. You know, you would not want to be an accountant or a banker. If you were at the top of your retail, you'd want to go into tech. So Mm. it's quite a big transition. I think that's a really relevant point for parents to see how the tables have been turned in terms of where do the brightest and best students want to go. They do not want to be accountants at KPMG, bankers at Morgan Stanley, or lawyers at Clifford Charles. Horrible professions. Look at the offices. The offices can matter far more than salary now. They want to be in an open office environment that's offered by tech. And 
it'll take decades before those old professions can adapt, can let go of the old vine, as I use in the expression of Tarzan economics, and grab onto the new one. But the other point that's in there is, you know, from understanding how things are consumed to being sold. So one of the key lessons from Spotify is we gave up on a world of transactional data. Okay, so follow me here. In the late 90s, in the cocaine capitalism of the late 90s, when the music industry was at its peak, when record labels would take helicopters to their private jets, they used to yeah. sell CDs, get this, by the weight of pallet. I've got a pallet of CDs here. Great. Not what's on there. How much does it weigh? 30 kilo. I'll give you this much for it. Shania Twain, Robson Jerome, doesn't matter. It's all going to sell. Now we get to see the consumption analytics of every single stream happening on Spotify, time of day, IP location, age, gender, profile of the user, source of those streams, everything mm. about consumption. And that's a big revelation for me in terms of how music got there first in terms of letting go how things were sold, transactional data points, yeah. to how they're consumed, consumption analytics. Yeah. Let's just take one really simple example that your listeners would relate to. Let's say the Minister for Transport wants to understand the health of the transport economy during the pandemic. And what they've done is they've looked at how many cars were sold last quarter. This will happen in government in 2021. I'm going to measure the transportation needs of this economy by car sales, transactional data. Would it be more helpful for an economist in the room to raise their hand and say, I don't care how many cars are sold. I care about how those cars are being consumed. Yes. And for what purpose? You know, are car sales down because the majority of car sales last quarter were just Toyotas, which have been acquired by Uber drivers to move more people around with less ownership? Far more interesting story than trying to understand, tell me if car sales are up 2% or down 4% in the previous quarter, which is currently the narrative. Yeah. You could apply that to gyms. You know, is the nation getting healthier, Jennifer? Yes, because gym membership spiked in January. Wonderful. Shut up. Go get a job in a shoe shop. You're not wanted. I want to learn yeah. about whether people are using those gyms and how they're using those gyms, which is the birth of fitness apps, where you can see Apple is investing so heavily in. Yeah. That same transition of, you know, decades, centuries of give me transactional data so I can make judgments to this new world which Spotify discovered first and everyone else is discovering now because we got mm. there first, because we're that canary in the digital coal mine. I want to understand how content's being consumed. And I think that's the big pivot that we're all facing. And if you have no qualifications, but you've cracked that nugget, then you're a hell of a lot more valuable. And that's where we have a real problem in the economics profession. Do not do a degree, a master's, a PhD in something that's become irrelevant, which is transactional knowledge. Understand consumption. Hundred percent, and it, there's been a lot of a lot of the interviews so far. We've been talking about the different applications of economics, and environmental economics is is a big one, um, and how economics is applied to you know environmental issues. And just when you were talking about the car thing right now, it makes my blood boil. If if we were allowed to swear, I would use a different um, term that you're probably more familiar with. Yeah, I don't care how many cars are sold because I've got a ten year old, actually twelve year old car outside that's a diesel. And it's much more important how often do I use it? How far do I go when we're talking about the environmental impact of cars? And, you know, this idea that mm -hmm. do not, you know, do not buy a diesel. Well, how about do not buy a car? Like use the one you've got until, you know, it's it. And, and again, there's there's no easy answers. There are many, many factors involved in any of those decisions. And again, I think that's where economics really stands out. I can give you an, um, an even more beautiful example of one that's much closer to home for me is it's Go on. literally 24 hours before I say to my mum and dad, your son's an author, because the book comes out tomorrow. <gasps> but one Yay! lesson I learned about the book industry, and this has given me to a, a wise old fox of the book industry, I will not name this person, but they'd been in the business for many, many years. And I was at a summit of the book industry and they were saying, maybe the book industry could do what Spotify could do. And I, I stood up on stage and said, no, how can you say that? Because you listen to a song more than once, but you rarely read a book more than once. Therefore, the models don't really mm -hmm. work. They're not compatible. Sorry for making a blatantly obvious point, but this doesn't work. Yeah. I got booed off stage for saying that. But nevertheless, <laughs> the, this, this wise old publisher came up to me afterwards. He said, wise words, Mr. Page. You, know, you made a good point up there. You should take heart from that. Ignore the booing. I was like, okay. He said, in my industry, I run my P&L every year, and he's a very successful book publisher, on the basis that 80% of books that are sold are not consumed. I said, what the rubber duck are you saying here? Yeah. He said, 80% of 
consumption is not consumed. That is, eight out of 10 books that I put out in the market are sold. They pay the price, mm. but they don't actually get read. They're on a glass table. They're in a bookshelf collecting dust, or maybe they're a gift, but they're not consumed by the person who made the purchase. I was like, that's a ton of breakage in your business model. How on earth can you be a successful publisher with that type of ratio where 80% of your of your worth is not actually being consumed Crazy. by the purchaser? And he said to me, that's why I always like to say that the record collection defines who you are and the book collection defines who you really want to be. Wow. When he said that, my jaw hit the floor. It's like, where is he taking me here? And I went back to my house, looked to my bookshelf, recited that line, the record collection defines who you are. I've listened to all of those records. I own every John Coltrane record ever released. I listen to them all religiously. Yeah. But the book collection defines who you really want to be. And I was looking at my book collection thinking – Carl Popper, I only bought that book so I could pretend to be as brainy as my big brother. I never actually bothered to read it. <laughs> Damn, 80% of this bookshelf hasn't actually been taken mm-hmm. off the shelf yet, but I paid for the content. Yeah. So then back to transactional data, great, we're selling more books. That's useful. You've got a PhD in unselling transactional data or book sales. Wonderful. I don't care. I want to understand how are those books being consumed, if indeed they're being consumed at all. And also, oh, this is, I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but also then the next question for the book industry is, does that matter? Will people continue to not consume or not consume in that way? In which case, will it continue ad infinitum? Unlikely. Jen, it's bigger, bigger questions, Jennifer. Go on. The biggest one is what we're doing right now, mm. podcasts. If it's a means to the end, which Jennifer's got some great inspirational ideas, albeit expressed in Doric, <laughs> and I want to get them in my head, well, I could hold a book in front of my face for two hours a day for three weeks reading a book, or I could listen to a 42-minute podcast. Yeah. You know, achieve the same game. Got your podcast, don't need your book. And that entire industry is just like a sleeping giant walking into this 100%. this tornado of disruption as podcasts start to eat up their lunch. And I'm seeing top authors, like some of the biggest name authors, see their book sales crater fall off a cliff mm-hmm. and their podcasts, you know, going yeah. through the ceiling. Can I just be the economist in the room to say we have an issue here? But yeah, and again, just like with music 20 years ago, you're dealing with an inconvenient truth and yeah. it's hard to persuade people to have a problem ahead of them when their jobs depend on them not understanding it. Yeah. Welcome to the role of an economist 101. Well, can I, I know we've run over time and I'm really sorry because I could talk about this for ages. I, I would love to hear your opinion on audiobooks in that equation because again I'm a massive fan of audiobooks because I can be listening to a particular and and I I know that some people have a particular thing where they'll listen to a, a non-fiction audiobook but don't like to listen to fiction audiobook and vice versa where do you think that sits in terms of you know because like I say podcasting is disrupting audiobooks is one of the ways that the book industry is start is hopefully trying to hang on to the the listeners but how do they compare Audiobooks raises a couple of interesting questions. Um, the first one, a personal one for me, is when you go on your first-time author book journey and you spend 12 months in a bat cave writing and you come up for air and start the, the manuscript process, is that email you get, which is, who do you want to speak your book or voice your book? You know? Yeah. I've never asked that before. Like, I put my life into this book and somebody else is going to read it on Audible. Sean Connery passed away the same day as I got that email, so clearly <laughs> it could be him. But, uh, yeah, I got Angus King, who famously, I would argue, famously read uh, Shoggy Bane, which was mm. an audible breakout success story. And that's an interesting back end to the, what's happening with audiobooks, which is, you know, that broke out, Shoggy Bane was a success in audible first, then hardback mm. paperback second. So you have that two by two matrix of your management consultant of great reader, bad book, bad reader, good book type yep. trade-off. But Angus King from Creef, so we have a Creef accent, is apparently what, you know, he scores 4.9 in all the books that he's read. So, you know, it's interesting to think about the actual book writing process in Audible. Second thing which you can add to the, the debate about what happens to audiobooks and Audible specifically is what happens if they were to go to an mm. all-you-can-eat payment model, similar to Spotify? Yeah. Give us £20 a month and you can listen to as many books as you want. Mm. Great. We've now raise the average revenue per user, the RPU figure for because they're spending 20 as opposed to 10 or 15. You know, they're getting more value for their money. They're getting an option value to listen to as much as they want. They're getting a buffet proposition. But the question the economist has to quickly raise their hand and ask is, how are you going to distribute that money to the authors? Is it going to be by time spent listening to the book? 
Is it going to be by the quality score of each book listened to, which is I spent hours listening to this book and thought it was terrible, so please give them less of my £20 a month, and I spent a few yeah. minutes listening to this book, but it captured my imagination, please give them the majority of it. How do you allocate? And that's, that's a, a fascinating piece of work, and I would encourage uh, the students and the parents listening to think about this, because underneath that debate is a topic called fair division, mm. which is long lost in the history of economics. And um, if you go back to the Polish mathematicians who met in the town of Lau in Poland, at a cafe, get this, Jennifer, get this, a cafe called The Scottish Cafe. Can you believe that? Of course it was. <laughs> but they, they, they basically came up with the concept of fair division. For those who can remember how it works, you know, very quickly, if there's a cake and the job is that Will and Jennifer need to cut up that cake fairly, the simple rule is to give Will the knife and Jennifer the choice because it forces me to cut evenly because I can't control the choice I'm going to be left behind with. Enter a third person and you're dealing with the mathematics of preference and envy, and that's where fair division lives. In music streaming today, Spotify, Amazon, Apple, YouTube, across all of them, we're having this debate right now, which simply says, Mm. should it be the case that Jennifer's £10 a month for Spotify goes into an aggregate pot with everyone else in that country for that period. And then what we do is we allocate the proceeds pro rata to all the artists and songwriters, which essentially means if you get 1% of all the streams that happened in that country for that period, for that product, then you get 1% of all the cash. Simple, Mm. efficient distribution of revenues. Or should we ring fence Jennifer's £10 a month to just her music? And it's such a divisive debate in music yeah. just now in terms of people taking, you know, you know, very heated debates with strong opinions either side, which I love as an economist. Let's hear it, mm. let's hear it, let's hear it. Underneath it is some really interesting economics about trade-offs. Yeah. I can give you efficiency, the pro rata model of electing a government, or I can give you fairness, the proportional representation model of electing a government, but I can't give you both. No. And it's a beautiful example of economics at work. As soon as you say did you know that your music streaming service is paying artists that you didn't actually listen to? People are offended. <laughs> yeah. But you didn't contract with the artists, you contracted with the platform. Yeah. So we have a paper published with a mentor of mine, David Safier, who studied at LSE and the University of Chicago and you know, really pioneered economics and collective administration uh, called Money In, Money Out. So if you were to Google up Page Safier, Money In, Money Out, it should come up at the top of the rankings. Yeah. And we will certainly circulate that paper plus some sort of non-technical descriptions of the work. Mm. But that's a really, really powerful example of putting economics to work for students to listen to. Because all those students listening will have access to streaming services. Yep. All of those students listening will know there's money going from either their bank account or the bank of mom and dad to that streaming service. Yeah. I would ask those students who are thinking about economics to ask the next question, which is, that's the money into the platform. How does the money get distributed out? And that brings economics to life. And there's a, there's a million other questions that came in as you were describing that as well. Because I think about, again, it go back to the diversity debate. And, and I think in music, is, you know, going back to you know Elvis making money off of a number of black artists who'd kind of paved the way and and wrote the music and and then so how do you then factor that in as to which artists get the get the money back afterwards and then you also have to factor in the recommendation engine and how the fairness of a recommendation engine and the you know and that side of things as to well if we're looking at who got listened to and, and is that how the money gets distributed well how do we know that that was fair in the first place for people getting ripped there's just so many factors at play i'm an advisor of the company who sampled which is the biggest crowdsourced database of sampled music in the world a fascinating wow. you, know, for, for, you know for your listeners please go there and try the six mm. degrees of separation where you can name two artists any two artists you know completely unconnected yeah and they'll connect them through sampling through six steps it's a brilliant brilliant experiment but yeah the sampling debate is a fascinating one about copyright and ownership yeah. like who owns the song a couple of very quick examples to bring that to life there's a famous hit by the verve around the time of the millennium called bittersweet symphony yes. so this is like 20 years ago and it used a sample by andrew lou goldman doing a version of a rolling stone song yeah and you know the original intention was for the band was we'd use this as a loop at the introduction and that's it you know mm. you know a four bar loop and we'll go into our song what they actually ended up doing was using the the sample throughout the entire song and it became the, the corner cornerstone of the composition and the singer of the verve unfortunately wore a t-shirt which said who the f is mick jagger which didn't help with the diplomacy of the legal no. negotiations with the rolling stone what rolling stones got i think 95 percent of the publishing for that song and, and then 20 years later gave the verve their publishing back 
so they actually owned it. Unfortunately, the song This Could Be the Last Time, there's another band from a gospel African-American band mm. who are also looking at suing the Rolling Stones for that sample. So, you know, who stole the song from who stole the song kind of fillover effect. And it's all documented very interestingly on the site. But it just raises that question that John Lennon said, which is a good artist borrows, a great artist steals. What is original anymore? And yeah. th- that's a beautiful example of copyright. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, those debates are really great. I really want to be the, I don't want to be an economist. I want to be the judge in the courtroom that makes those decisions. <laughs> That smokes a big herbal spliff, listens to the music, and says, guilty. Yeah. You know, I think that would be the best profession in the world. It's just like, you know, working out, did you actually steal that song or were you just inspired by it? Those cases are great for raising the question of intellectual property. And, you know, just to underline in terms of career opportunities, economics, intellectual property, big opportunities right there, right now, thanks to technology. Yeah. Massive. Um, I'm going to ask you just one final question for the for the podcast listeners. I mean, we've covered this in many different ways, I think, throughout this discussion. But just to kind of let's see if there's some way we can summarise a little bit of it. But what advice would you give to teachers and parents who are talking to young people about economics as a career, just to kind of distill, if you like, some of the advice? I'm going to try and give you one that nobody else would give. I don't want to repeat words that people will hear in other podcasts. I think that'd be value added, as it were. Yeah. I'm going to go back to Adam Smith and go back to his career. And he said a lot of really, really, like, to try and really understand Adam Smith, it's hard. Like, Mm. some of that language is not good. But when you get digging, you can really uncover some absolute gems that influence your life. and. Mm. This story revolves around when Adam Smith was at Glasgow lecturing in philosophy and then moved to Oxford and spent a few months down there with the Dreaming Spires of Oxford, the most prestigious academic institution in the world at the time. And after six to eight months there, and forgive me if I get the dates and the facts slightly out of context here, he decided to quit Oxford and go back to Glasgow. And the deans of Oxford said to him, Adam, you're the most important academic on the planet. America's been built based on your principles of the free market. Everybody's been influenced by your work. You know, you're questioning, it's the Enlightenment did, the role of the state in the church. And then you're here at Oxford and you're deciding to go back to Glasgow. Not Aberdeen or Edinburgh, but Glasgow. You know, why, why are you quitting here? And I, I'm going to paraphrase here, but Adam Smith basically said, as soon as a professor no longer has to compete for his students, he therefore becomes redundant. And what he was yeah. meaning was, because everybody wanted to study at Oxford, he didn't need to try. He didn't need to keep himself on his toes. He didn't need to advance his ideas. And when I read this, it just explained so much of some of the challenges of universities being mm-hmm. essentially monopolies, which is, if I don't need to compete for that next round of 180 students wanting to do Econ 101 next year, then... I don't need to try and be a good professor. And I think back to university about how many bad lectures I had, how many god-awful professors there were. So many. So much deadwood needs trimmed. And you're being asked to cough up £9,000 in fees for this deadwood. Mm-hmm. And I think what Adam Smith said is it's because they don't have to compete. Mm-hmm. They've got job security for life. I get the argument for that, the whole tenure debate I get. But yeah. one thing that you know comes from that is the problem of a monopoly. Yeah. You know, this means... You can't go bankrupt. You don't need to try. So I would just stress to students and parents, yes, there is prestigious universities out there. And yes, I'm sure they've earned their reputation. And yes, I'm sure they're going to justify that reputation in their fees. But be wary that those with the best reputation will often try least Mm. versus those who perhaps don't have the best reputation but are putting everything into their teaching. Those superstar academics you see on the profile, you ain't going to get lectured by them. And even if you do, you won't get tutorials with them and you'll never get time in their offices. So don't think that part of the appeal is actually going to come to fruition when you make that choice to wage study. You know, as soon as that professor no longer has to compete for the students, he therefore becomes redundant because the job of a professor is to champion new ideas and to keep fighting to make things better, not to be complacent in your laurels in the past. So... Yeah, I think that lesson from Adam Smith in the 1700s is even more relevant now with the cost of education as well. Absolutely. Oh, and we could do another episode on that. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been amazing. And like I said, I think it will be really valuable for the listeners to kind of understand what the 
all the different applications and the different kind of life, if you like, you can have with economics that they maybe just hadn't realised before. And I'm hoping we'll put the link to your book and to the articles that we've mentioned and stuff like that in the description. And you and I can have a wee chat about if there's anything else you think would be worth kind of adding on at the end. I have included things like the money and money, money out link and, 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 and also to who sampled, because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff for students and parents to look up there. Yeah, and I, maybe just a quick add, I, I invested heavily in a, a new website, tarzaneconomics.com, mm. and the woman who built the website, Freya Rose Tanner, wonderful woman, you know, couldn't recommend her highly for this type of work. And she said, what's the one purpose you want your website to deliver? Is it book promotion? I said, no. I said, I want to help students. I want to help that student thinking, what am I going to do with my UCAS form? Am yeah. I about to commit to all this debt? So under the section called Rockonomics there, I put a huge resource of everything within Amazing. the relevant in my part publications that people can get to as well so you know that one's there to help people learn brilliant oh make sure that that is all in there thank you so much i'm hoping that we'll be able to do a follow-up series and come back with some questions from students and and parents and teachers so if you're up for that we can jump back in at some point absolutely and maybe you know just to toss out a wild wild style idea we could do it three way and i could get a music artist or something to come in on board as well and say you know as an artist with a career in this business, making a living out of this business, how would you have benefited from economics? I think that would be an interesting way of listening to a creative person you know, talk about where economics was missing in their lives as well. I think that could be a really interesting application of this subject for, for students and parents listening. Absolutely. That would be absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to our episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Please get in touch if you visit our website, discovereconomics.co.uk. You can email us through the site, get in touch, see all of our resources. And we'd love to hear from you if you've got any questions for our guests that we can pass on to them. And I keep nudging our guests. We're hoping to get them back in the hot seat again with your questions. So please do get in touch and let us know what you think. If you've enjoyed the podcast, remember to go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review. Remember to subscribe so that you get all the new episodes as they come in. And we look forward to hearing from you and letting us know what you think. See you on the next episode.